Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 299 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And as always, I am excited that you are here with us today. We are one episode away from our episode 300. And I have a gift for you. You want to make sure you're listening all the way to the end of our conversation. And you can hear about the gift there. But also because I care for you and I want you to have a very hot, exciting sex life. I want to make sure that you are, you've downloaded the checklist of nine ideas you can use tonight to invigorate your foreplay. I also have a list of 100 ideas that I curated based on the kind of conversations I had with clients, with friends, things I read, things I've tried. But oftentimes people find that 100 ideas is just too much. People say like at times who has time to go through the list. So I chose nine of the most exciting one. And I also included a recommendation to one of my favorite sex stars. So you want to make sure that you're downloading the checklist if you haven't downloaded before. It's completely free. The link is in the show notes. Today, we're going to talk about psychology of dominance. We're going to talk about different types of dominance in the kinky community. We're going to talk about specifically about sadism because there are so many misconceptions when it comes to this orientation, this behaviors. And Stephanie, who just published her second book on working with kinky clients, she tell, she's going to tell us about why people have a desire to have power over others in the bedroom. She's going to tell us about pro-social sadism, and we're going to talk about everyday sadism, where it's coming from. So I, I bet that some of the ideas you have about this behavior is inaccurate. I had tons of misconception about some of this, this behaviors, and I talk about these things all the time. So I hope you get to learn more about these practices from our conversation today. Our guest is Stephanie Gorick, ASAC Certified Sex Therapist. Stephanie Gorick is an expert in working with gender and relationship and sexuality diversity, as well as religious minority clients, and has over 15 years experience in supporting survivors of domestic and sexual trauma. We had Stephanie in the show a couple of years ago about her other book, The Litter Couch Clinical Practices with Kinky Clients. And we had a conversation, which you can find in our a catalog. Her book, The Litter Couch, got the 2021 ASAC Book Award. And she just published the second book. I think it's under month that just published. The title is Kink Affirming Practice, Culturally Competent Therapy from the Litter Couch. You can find it everywhere that you can find books. I personally read it and I loved it. And we're going to talk about it in this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephanie Golrick. 
Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to welcome back Stephanie Goldrick. Stephanie, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Right before I hit the recording, I was sharing with you how much I love your new book and what a needed information for clinicians, for people who are in the BDSM community. Because in graduate school, as a psychologist, I believe I haven't received that much information working with people who are are practicing alternative sexuality, practicing BDSM. And I, I, what I like about your book, it's kind of something that people within the community, they can use that and also clinicians. So tell us, how did you get interested in writing this book? So this is actually my second book on this topic. The first uh, came out right smack in the middle of COVID. That was The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. And, you know, it, global pandemic, we didn't get a huge book launch experience but it, it did well. ASAP gave it uh, their book award. SAR gave it one of their book awards and it's been well received. So this is what I like to think of as an advanced practice sequel, right? The Leather Couch was kind of introducing the, the idea of and the basics around BDSM, kink, fetishes, and power exchange relationships to clinicians. This is focused more on taking that knowledge deeper and bringing in a, a stronger theoretical framework on kind of exploring ways in which aspects of kink correspond to some evidence-based practices that we use in our world. And really just kind of helping the reader look at BDSM and kink, not as a treatment modality, but as, you know, a strength and an internal resource that their, that their clients are bringing to the table that we can and should be including in our conversations and in our treatment planning. One thing that I like in your book that you have is interviews with other clinicians, something that people in the general population, they don't know that is like, not everyone got trained as I was talking about in these topics and people, other clinicians talking about that they haven't got some of these trainings at school and they were talking about their experience of becoming a kink aware therapist. And there's just tons of misconception working with people in these communities. I was hoping we can talk more about dominant side. I know that you had a whole chapter on in, in that topic. <laughs> what are some of the misconceptions that people have about someone who's interested in dominance in the bedroom? So, so I think the, the the biggest one, and I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody listening, is there is a lot of confusion around dominance versus domestic violence and a power exchange or authority exchange relationship versus coercive abuse. And so one of the biggest things that I unpack uh, for readers in, in the talks and workshops that I do is around sort of parsing out the difference between domestic violence and consensual kink. Another thing that I hear quite a bit when I'm doing consultations is this idea that somebody who is dominant must have some form of personality disorder. They're narcissistic or they are antisocial or they are status. And, and so there's a lot of kind of intrinsic mistrust towards dominant people and dominant clients that I don't necessarily always see 
when talking to people about their clients who identify as submissive. I think that there's a lot more research and study done on submissive personality types. And because there isn't a lot of literature for the other half of that coin, there are a lot of misconceptions around these folks. Absolutely. And where does that misconception comes from? From like how people, these, these people are depicted in media, in porn, and even in the kind of like movies that we see. So I think it's, it's important for people to know that those are fictional stories and these are different than people's experiences. Like I know that with the start of, I know you also talk about in the book with Fifty Shades of Grey. People think mm-hmm. that's, that's what dominance look like. I mean, the guy was extremely hot. <laughs> But I think beside that, I I feel like there was just lots of non, it seemed like lots of non-consensual exchanges there, which was tough to watch. There was a lot of non-consent. I've heard people say frequently that the class factor in Fifty Shades is what made it attractive to people. That if those same behaviors were happening in a trailer park instead of a Mm -hmm. penthouse, readers would be having a very different reaction. And then, you know, even setting aside the consent questions in Fifty Shades, the dominant character, Christian, is portrayed as somebody with a strong childhood trauma, with broken relationships with his mother and family systems. He describes himself at one point as Fifty Shades of Fucked Up. And the entire sort of plot arc of the story is leading to this moment of healing where he can finally be the vanilla person that a healthy quote-unquote person should be. And that's a really unfair portrayal of dominance, even if every other aspect of that story was consensual and beautiful and healing. It is not true of dominant personalities that they are mentally ill, that they have trauma histories or or are prone to abuse. And, And these pop culture depictions of dominance as acting out some maladaptive urge on their partners is really problematic when I'm working with clinicians who are treating these people. I agree with you. There's this almost this underlying theme of like needing to be saved. And I think that becomes problematic when you have a client that they are kind of like identify as kinky and as a clinician, we're thinking or toward like working toward healing them to turn them vanilla and kind of like the judgment that comes from that looking at these things from a pathological lens. Well, tell us, I know in your book, you talk about different types of dominance, like how sadism is different than topping all of these different categories. So tell us about all of these differences. <laughs> so if if you were to go on to FetLife, which is probably the biggest sort of BDSM and kink social media site, you will find dozens, if not hundreds of ways that people define their kink identity. I think it would be impossible to describe every single form of dominance, but we have some overarching sort of broad stroke categories that people tend to identify with. Uh, You mentioned topping. A lot of people enjoy time-bound situational scenes with a partner that aren't necessarily focused on a relationship style or a long-term authority exchange agreement. They just want to vlog somebody or they just want the sensation of giving a spanking and feeling that heat on their hand. And so a lot of times those people will describe themselves as tops because what they're wanting is 
to top or dominate somebody for a fixed period of time for a specific reason, purpose, and scene. It doesn't necessarily extend beyond that. Dominance, on the other hand, tend to like to take a hierarchical role within their relationship as a whole. So whether they are spanking their partner or making dinner or deciding household budgets within their relationship, they are going to be the person, you know, the buck stops here. They are the final decision-making authority within that relationship. And that is negotiated, that is consensed by their partner or partners. There may be limits on what they have the right to make a decision around, um, but they they serve as sort of the leader role within the relationship. There are, there's a couple named Kevin and Katie who do some great phenomenal power exchange education. And I love their workshops because they always talk about leaders and followers. And I think that's a really lovely way of looking at it because it's not demanding. It's not taking, it is leading. Kevin and Katie lead into a great example of another form of dominance. Some people and some people listening to this might cringe a little when I say it, let me explain, <laughs> use the terms master and slave for their relationships. There is the burgeoning of the idea of a movement within the kink community to drift away from these terms, because especially for Americans, they are very loaded. But the terminology itself doesn't actually have anything to do with, you know, the American conception of historical slavery that we think of. It is a 24-7 power exchange dynamic. So this is a dominant person who has negotiated a relationship agreement where they are the final authority figure across the board in their relationship. A dominant may have some areas where they are the leader and other areas where it's an egalitarian decision-making process. A master-slave dynamic, that is not the case. The terms master and slave actually are a, a nod back to ancient Roman Greece. They come out of the post-World War II gay male leather scene. And, and they really were looking at the relationships between men in ancient Greece, at the ways in which these relationships between men of power and prestige and the servants that, yeah, they, they did own would interact, the bonds and relationships that would form. And really the original terminology was coined thinking of homosexual love and homosexual relationships and loyalties in ancient Greece. Now that's become a, a more sort of gender inclusive term, including queer identifying women will use master as opposed to mistress or some other derivation. But that's a very long-winded way of saying that master is differentiated from dominant by how expansive the authority is in that relationship. And then the last one that I'm going to touch on for now are our caregiver dominance. So there are a, a pretty sizable subsection within the kink community of people who enjoy role-playing as um, puppies, as kittens, as ponies. And their dominance will often use the term handler or trainer. And it is a caregiving form of dominance akin to taking care of a beloved house pet. They are pampered and played with and loved and teased and supported and disciplined when necessary, but it's a very sort of playful interaction. Also, we have people who identify as caregivers whose partners enjoy role-playing at different ages. So they might 
love to come home from their job and put on onesie pajamas and stretch out on the floor and watch Disney Plus and color in a coloring book. And their dominants often refer to themselves as daddies or mommies. Daddy, like master, is kind of genderqueered today. And again, it's a caregiving dynamic. So it might be a little bit less sadistic than some other forms of dominance, a little bit gentler, a little bit more playful and supportive, almost parental, but not really. It's just kind of a softer form of dominance. So topping, dominant, master, handler, caregiver, I would say are the biggest categories within the field of dominance. And then there are a million subsets from there. Well, thank you for that introduction. And, and again, in the books, people who are interested, you go in, in significant depth and each category, what it entails, the research around that, I think it's just beautiful and very informative. And I wonder that for people who are interested, I want to, I want to be dominant in the bedroom, how people often discover what what is it that they like? Because there are some things that we have exposure to, and there are things that we haven't got exposure to. How do you, like based on your experience with clients, how people discover their identity in the king community? So the the origin story, and one of my favorite kinky podcasters describes this as the, the spider bite into kink, right? <laughs> Everybody has their spider bite into kink. Varies from person to person. And that's one of the things that fascinates me about working with this population is hearing everybody's sort of unique point of entry in. From a research perspective, I would say that the data shows us that there's a sizable plurality of people who will tell you that they have always been kinky. They might not have had that term for it. There are not many second graders who know the words BDSM and kink. But there are lots and lots of second graders that were playing cops and robbers on the playground and realized that when they got tied up to the jungle gym, it felt really good in a weird way they couldn't quite put their finger on. And a lot of those stories, as people mature, as they become adults and are introduced to more mature content and, and ideas, they will look back and go, oh, I, I've always been kinky. I just didn't know what that was. So a, a good number of people... They, they don't necessarily require an introduction. They just need the vocabulary to describe who they already are. There's also a, a sizable minority, maybe like 30% of people who will say that they might have started out as vanilla or at least not really familiar with BDSM and kink, who once it was introduced to them by a partner felt this kind of click. And they're like, okay, this feels really good. This feels right. This feels natural for me. And then there are people who, through experimentation, through play, have experienced specific sensations. I mentioned being tied up on the jungle gym or have been thrown into situations where maybe they were forced to take control of a situation in a way that they wouldn't typically do. And that experience has led them to say, this is something I want to learn more about. And then they actively seek it out. One thing we don't see, and it's really important to say, is that people are not kinky because they are traumatized. The rates of reported trauma within the kink community are the same as they are within the general population. So one spider bite that we know we can rule out is this idea that, oh, they were abused when they were little, so now they're kinky. And I hear that both for dominant people and submissive people, and the research just doesn't bear that out. And uh, also, I know in the book you were talking about how 
people are practicing BDSM are tend to have like a more openness to novelty, kind of a lower level of stress after experiences. So there's so many different reasons that you mentioned that might lead to someone who want to be a kind of part of the kind of the kinky community or kind of identify as kink as part of their sexual orientation. I guess one of the, like I, I have some kind of awareness of different categories. I work with clients in the kink community. One of the subcategory that's been very interesting to me is people identify as sadist. And I feel mm-hmm. like I, although I got some training in my event sex therapy training on BDSM, I got very like small training on sadism. So tell us more about that. And who are pro-social sadists? I, I, I love that part of your book. So sadism is a word that I would say scares most of the clinicians I consult with particularly when it's introduced by their client. When they have a client who comes in and says, I'm a sadist, I like to hurt people, that freaks out therapists, which makes sense because for the most part, the only time we touch on the idea of sadism in our clinical training is maybe if you're lucky in an abnormal psych class or if you take an elective in forensic psych, you might get it there. But the problem is, is that forensic psychology is going to focus on really maladaptive cases and they're going to be focusing on a type of sadism that the vast majority of our clients are not describing when they're applying that label to themselves. One of my dear, dear friends, Alyssa Helfer, just finished her dissertation and her project was looking at the education that graduate students receive around BDSM and kink and looking for knowledge gaps so that we can start building a framework for improving the quality of sexual health and kink aware education that people get. Her work is brilliant. People need to read it. But for sadism specifically, we usually think of the serial killers, the rapists, the, the people that are in prison, right? We're, we're thinking of, of true crime documentaries when somebody says sadism. And that's a very specific thing. Sexual sadism disorder is in the DSM-5. But within the ICD-11, they're starting to kind of change that and clarify what they mean. And so the the sort of psychology community, the people that decide what our diagnoses are, are starting to use the term coercive sexual sadism disorder to talk about those scary people in the night that we tend to think of when we hear sadism. To think about the people who are not just sadistic, but also really aggressive and antisocial. Because most sadists actually don't fall into that category. (laughs) Most sadists fall into what uh, social psychologists would call everyday sadism. They are people that are normal, well-adjusted people with everyday lives and jobs and responsibilities who have sadistic tendencies, who enjoy doing things or who will choose to do things that other people would find difficult to do because of perhaps empathy or compassion, the the ability to put themselves in the other person's place and not wanting to do that. The the One of the studies that was done involved asking people to choose from a variety of tasks, one of which was grinding up live bugs. Uh, the bugs were not actually harmed in the course of the study, but the participants didn't know that. And what they found was people that volunteered for that job, like, yep, that's the one I want to do. I don't want to clean the floors. I want to kill the bugs. 
when they did evaluatory measures, scored higher on sadistic impulses than people that did other tasks. And they rated the enjoyability of their work higher than people that chose to clean the floors instead. So there is a sizable population of people who have this sort of, I like to watch people squirm. I enjoy that discomfort. I enjoy the power that comes with being the one that sparks a little bit of fear in others. But that is, for some professions and some roles, a really useful skill. (laughs) A lot of surgeons, if they're evaluated, score high in sadism. A lot of attorneys score and politicians score high in sadism. And it's not that we're saying that surgeons and lawyers are bad, evil people. They are performing necessary roles for the function of our society. We need people who have a little bit of an emotional reserve, right? We need people whose empathy levels vary from yours and mine to do the things that you and I would not be able to do because of our levels of empathy. So that's everyday sadism. One thing that I'm starting to hear a lot about that I'm very curious about is the idea of everyday sadism in the field of law enforcement. Not to say that police officers are automatically sadistic, but we're talking about a role that carries a lot of authority and has a a space where violence can occur, whether, you know, they're proacting or reacting, where there is some social flexibility for aggression. And one of the conversations that's happening in my world, especially as we look at social justice movements and Black Lives Matter and police brutality, is really thinking about whether or not law enforcement is another one of those fields where our everyday sadists feel comfortable. And if so, again, we need people with those personality types. But how do we use that knowledge to create safer communities for the people that are being policed? So that's another factor there. You had mentioned empathetic and pro-social sadism. Pro-social sadism is my favorite. We're going to get there. Empathetic sadism. One of the researchers that I cite in my book actually described empathetic sadists as emotional vampires, as empathetic vampires. They are people who enjoy the distress of others because they actually do empathize with it. Instead of having that distance that a surgeon needs in order to cut somebody open, the empathetic sadist is able to really hone in on the emotional state of the person that is suffering. And they have a vicarious thrill from that, a vicarious experience from their act of sadism in that way. Some pinky sadists, I would say, might fall into that category. I think a lot of our our people who identify as switches, who enjoy topping and bottoming, may find themselves, you know, being empathetically sadistic, something where I'm going to take a bamboo rod and I'm going to cane her back until it is raw because I know what that feels like. And I enjoy watching them go through something that I know I can take. So the empathetic sadism is that desire to inflict hurt, not harm, but hurt because of the emotional reaction. And then our pro-social status, most of the, the people that we think of as dominance would, would, the ones that enjoy sensation play, the ones that enjoy causing hurt, not harm, and not all dominance do. 
but would probably fall into the category of pro-social sadism. Uh, this was a term coined by the science of BDSM research team at Northern Illinois University. Brad Sagarin was on my dissertation committee. His team is amazing. They do great work. Their papers are all on their website. Highly recommended, fascinated reading. But what they found was that BDSM sadists report a higher level of sexual arousal when their partner is explicitly consenting. So they still have that pleasure received from hurting someone, not harming them. They still have the arousal and the the power rush that comes from being in a position to inflict hurt on somebody else. But unlike our criminal sadists and unlike our pathological sadists, pro-social sadists only enjoy it when they know their partner enjoys it too, which I think is fascinating. And our everyday sadists kind of fall somewhere in between non-consensual and pro-social. Our everyday sadists like being in a space where their sadistic behavior is allowed or at least tolerated but they don't necessarily care if the other person enjoys it. Pro-social sadists want to find the partner that wants to experience the hurt that they provide. And most of what what people would describe as sadistic within the context of BDSM falls within that umbrella of pro-social sadism. They very, very much like inflicting intense sensations on their partner, but they need to know that their partner likes it too. And I think that is such a different perspective on this topic compared to what people think. You're right. When people think sadists, they think forensic psychology and people who are kind of like coming to your house and kind of like do all sorts of harm are all those things that we've, we've uh, read about, seen about. But this is a very different brand of behaviors. So what would kind of like sadist, and I, and I know sadism in bedroom could look like so many different things or galaxies of options, but for our listeners that they're not familiar with it, what would be, for example, an example of kind of like different types of exchanges that happens in the bedroom in that context? So this is a conversation that I have a lot when I'm talking about the difference between abuse and kink. Because one of the things that's really, really important to understand before we even get to that point is understanding that our brain cannot differentiate between types of pain. So me calling you an incredibly hurtful name, me knowing exactly what words to say to just wound you to your core, your brain is going to receive the same way as if I slap you across the face. So because of that, we have different forms of sensation play, right? We have people that like causing physically intense sensation, who enjoy heavy flogging, caning, whipping. Uh, we have, I, I work with couples, and this is difficult for me because this triggers my biggest phobia, who enjoy things like needle play, things that, you know, really do cause, cause a sharp pain, but don't leave lasting injury or damage. Again, that, that, that differentiator between causing hurt and harming someone. We also have people that aren't interested in that at all but who might be very turned on by um, humiliation play, degradation play, using those words and those situational ways of inflicting emotional distress in a consensual way that evokes those same sort of pain signals in the brain that physical pain does in their partners. I have worked with lots of masochistic clients who enjoy the endorphin rush that comes from pain play, 
but do not like being physically harmed. And so for them, a really intense degradation scene, which an outside observer might look at and go, oh my God, that is the most abusive, cruel, hateful thing I've ever seen is actually negotiated, carefully orchestrated, executed in a consensual way because the physiological response for them is the same as if they were tied up to a wooden frame and being being blocked. And I love that kind of emphasis on negotiated kind of things that people talk about. I, my listeners, they know that I have a Farsi show as well, that it's like I was used to get a lot of kind of questions in Farsi. So I started that show and I started answering questions about BDSM and people got very reactive because because of the information they had about kind of like being degraded in the bedroom without their consent. So they were talking about abuse and I was talking about a completely different thing. <laughs> so it was, it was important to educate people. So uh, I love that you're talking about, okay, these are the consensual ex- exchanges people are having. And I know in the book, you're talking about the ritual of caring and how much care it goes often into these relationships. And it's not a, it's not like something that you say to someone without kind of talking to them before and all all that I, I love even the, when we were talking about clarifying the type of relationship is this a one-time play we're having is this a multiple long-term partner so I think it's important for people to educate themselves about what they like what they don't like and how they can negotiate these things where can people go if they never had this information kind of presented to them they think about okay I'm interested I'm a kinky person Where can they go to learn more about it? So there are webinars and workshops and conferences all around the country. I am a big fan as as a resource for connecting people of FetLife. FetLife is, you know, every website, any, any technology is going to have its pros and its cons. But they have listings all around the country, all around the world, where people can go in and search by their geographic area without necessarily disclosing where they are, right? Maybe I live in Chicago, but I have a prominent job in Chicago. So I want to search for Milwaukee or for St. Louis, right? You can go in and you can look by a specific city and you can see what's happening in your area in terms of local social meetups, just to meet other people and hear about their lives and make friends and learn that way. One of the best ways to learn about the world of BDSM and King is by talking to people that are practitioners because the the level of variety and and, and sort of creativity within this world, there's not going to be a book or even a library that can tell somebody all of the possibilities available to them. So going to social events and meetups that are not dungeon spaces or play parties, but 20 people getting together at Denny's to hang out, make friends and talk about their lives can be a great point of entry for learning about what can relationships look like. What do I see that I find interesting? What do I see that I'm like, nope, that's not for me. I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, You can also find educational events. You can find conferences, weekend events on FetLife. And those for me are the best point of entry. There are lots and lots of good books written by people in the community about BDSM and kink. But one of the challenges is that so many of them are self-published that if somebody is completely new, if you don't know who to look for or who is considered a reputable voice within the kink 
community, then you don't know if what you're finding on Amazon is an incredibly insightful guide for beginners or if it's just complete dreck that somebody threw up and is charging $5 for. So I really encourage that sort of initial social engagement, just meet people, talk and learn approach to discovering kink. And I personally recommend your book to our clinicians that are listening to this show, because I feel like, again, we like, even in sex therapy, you get some information about BDSM. But what I love that you were going, you are and you were going deeper on those concepts. So tell us about your book and how can people find it? So it is on Amazon. It is on Bookshop. You can search for my name and both will come up, Leather Couch and Kink Affirming Practice. I also have several workshops that I'm doing coming up, webinars. I have one I'm doing for the University of Michigan Continuing Education. So anybody can sign up for it, specifically on Caregiver Kink. We're going to spend 90 minutes talking about pets and littles and the people that love them because it is such a playful friendly, soft form of BDSM. And yet so many of the clinicians that I consult with have very strong negative reactions about those particular corners of the kink community. So next month, I'm going to be spending some time talking about that. I'm going to be doing a four-part series with the Bueller Institute starting in November, where we're going to do Kink 101. We're going to do Kink Affirming Risk Assessment. How do we look at our clients' behaviors and help them safety plan, help them do risk assessments? How do we make sure that we are being, you know, ethical, proactive clinicians and acknowledging concerns when we see them? without pathologizing things that are well within the world of normal. So anybody could go to my website, which is just my name, stephaniegorlick.com and find links to my books, links to my trainings. And that's probably the easiest way. I'm always doing something around this, this world, probably at least once a month, I have something going on that people could connect with. Awesome. I leave a link to your website in the show notes, but people can find you. Thank you so much for all the wonderful writing you do in this area and uh, education you're providing. And it was so lovely to have you back in the show. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. And I love that how Stephanie's work has been destigmatizing some of the beliefs that people have around individuals who are practicing BDSM and kinks. And it's lovely to know that there's just a galaxy of different options of what's considered healthy sexual behaviors. As far as the gift for episode 300, I am gifting one listener $100 Amazon gift card. What all you would need to do is write us an honest review, either on Apple Podcasts, Teachers, CastBox, wherever you're listening to this show, and take a screenshot of it and DM me at Sexology Podcast account on Instagram. When I run these campaigns, I get somewhere between 15 to 20 responses. So the odds of you getting the $100 Amazon gift card is quite high. 
I would say like it's one of the entries and raffles that you can do with the highest chances of winning. I personally, when I enter for different things, is I almost never win because I realize there are thousands of entries. That's not the case here. If you already wrote us a review, thank you so much for doing it. Try to write it somewhere else. Again, if you wrote an Apple podcast, maybe you want to write it into write it into our kind of like cast box. We also started, I also started the YouTube channel. So you can either write it into YouTube and send me the screenshot. We will announce the winner on episode 302 because I want you guys to have the chance to enter. I'm just going to announce the username of the person who won and hopefully that you'll enjoy that $100 gift card. I can't wait to see you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.